we're on. We actually technically were supposed to have been finished November 17th, if you looked at the original syllabus. Uh, this is December 1st, so we're not quite finished, and we were supposed to run for about 10 weeks. We, we obviously have run a little bit uh, beyond that um, due to a dinner that we had two weeks ago, a slight uh, interruption that we had last week. Um, so I'm going to try to wrap this thing up tonight. Um, you got to bring an end to things at some point, and if we want to... Now, next week is Lessons and Carols. The following week is the Chili Supper. The week after that uh, is the Sunday before uh, Christmas, and we haven't typically met the Sunday before Christmas, the 22nd. 29th is the Sunday before New Year's Eve. We haven't typically met New Year's Eve. So, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up tonight. Um, but we're going to do something beginning uh, early in January. And, um, you know, we could take some time that, that first Sunday in January or first couple of Sundays to, to sort of review all of this or, or even elaborate uh, some of what we're going to do uh, this evening, talk about this evening. But basically what we want to do this evening um, is, um, oops, I forgot to write my third little, or last little word in here. Get this up here. What, what we're going to do this evening is look at the kingdom present, proclaimed, and and then perfected. Okay, we're going to do it, obviously, in summary, cursory form. But here's where, here's where we've been over these last weeks, um, looking at the Old Testament period, beginning with the creation. We've looked at the pattern of the kingdom. And in looking at the pattern of the kingdom, we've identified these motifs that sort of tie this idea of the kingdom of God together, um, the king or the ruler, and his, um, his rule, his law word that governs his people, that regulates life for his people, for their well-being and good. The first command given in the garden was, was a law word that was given to Adam and Eve, uh, designed for them and for their children and grandchildren uh, as a way of regulating life for them. It was, uh, there, was a, there was, in effect, a command to enjoy all of the fullness of the garden. There was a restriction, stay away from this particular tree. And, and all of that very succinct law word or rule was designed uh, for the well-being of his people. So there is, the, there is the ruler, there is his rule or his law word. The people, people live in a place and enjoy prosperity or God's blessing, his blessing upon them. So ruler, rule, place, people, and prosperity. And we've, we've uh, tried to sort of trace these motifs as we've, as we've continued, um, moving from the pattern of the kingdom to see the kingdom perished, but then the, the restoration of the kingdom promised, which begins actually with Genesis 3.15, but then those promises that are given to Abraham and that then begin to be realized in partial form in the nation Israel. Uh, so by the time you get uh, to the period of the kings, um, you, have, uh, you have a picture, you have the kingdom being pictured with God ruling over his people through his law word, the rule that he gives to his people, in a particular place, people in a particular place, Knowing prosperity, knowing blessing—that's what you—that's what you see um, as uh, Israel grows to become a numerous people, receives God's word through the conquest. They enter the promised land. Uh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a blessed land, and God ruling in the midst of them. So you have that—you have the kingdom then pictured, partial in its expression, but pictured. And then, uh, and that growth of the kingdom is represented by this solid line, and you get then to Second Kings four, which is this description of Solomon's reign about nine seventy B.C. And that's really the apex, uh, the high point, the high watermark 
of the kingdom of God. And from there, things begin to deteriorate, right? Things go south. Um, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam have this conflict. The kingdoms are split um, into north and south, the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. They war with each other. They make alliances with foreign powers. I mean, it's just a very, very checkered history through that period of the kings. And you remember the last time we were together, we put all these names and dates and all this stuff on the, you know, kind of cluttered the board up with all of this stuff. You remember what happened in 722? A couple of hundred years after, a couple hundred years or a little more after the reign of Solomon, what happened in 722 B.C.? Fall of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians march across the land and Samaria, the northern kingdom, uh, is decimated and the people are dispersed. Okay? And then you remember what happens, what, what is sort of concluded in 586. It begins around 605, 602, um, culminates in 586. What happens then? The Babylonian incursion into the land, um, and then the kidnapping or the deportation. Not of everybody. Not everybody was taken away, but all of the all of the leadership, in effect, was deported along with others to Babylon. And then 510 to 445 is is what? Remember this? Somebody knows this. 70 years, Daniel reads in the book of Jeremiah that after 70 years, what's promised after 70 years? Coming back, Coming back returning. So around 510, from 510 to 445 is the return. There were, and again, there were several uh, returns, but that period of time involves the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple, um, and then... For around 400, what, what's that date represent? The silent period, Malachi, the, the last of the, uh, of the writing prophets. Uh, and then you have this 400 years of silence um, until the appearance of... Yeah, but the prior appearance of Gabriel, <laughs> who breaks the silence, right? Gabriel, so... So that's where we are, pattern of the kingdom, the kingdom perished, the promise of the restoration of the kingdom, the kingdom pictured in the life of Israel, um, and then the kingdom prophesied through this period beginning uh, toward the end um, of the, um, the United Kingdom, and then this 400, period, uh, 400 year period of silence, and then we come to the next you know, big epical event, which is the incarnation. And what I'd, what I'd like to do tonight, actually, is just sort of think about, about the kingdom present, the kingdom proclaimed, and the kingdom perfected in, in terms of um, the, the kind of the liturgical year, the stuff that I referred to this morning in, uh, in the sermon, or just before the sermon. Um, and the first, you know, the, the, the thing that we're celebrating right now is... is what? I mean, what is this season? It's the season of Advent, right? And, and what are we celebrating in the season of Advent? Right, we're celebrating the incarnation, right? We're celebrating the coming of Christ um, into the world. And uh, again, just I'm going to look at a number of, uh, a number of passages in, in the notes uh, under Roman numeral 2. The first reference there is to Galatians 4.4. 4. So, so take a look at that. And um, to, um, let me just you know, read a couple, of, a couple of verses ahead of it, beginning at verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave... Though he, is the owner, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same we, way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now here's, look, it's interesting language, isn't it? Those first three verses. We too were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then there's this 
fourth verse, but, right? But. So someone has said the word, the word but is the largest word in the scriptures, right? It's a, it's a word of immense contrast. What is it that precedes verse 4? How can you think about this whole period of time, even with the promise of the restoration of the kingdom, the kingdom pictured, the kingdom prophesied, what can you think about this whole period? You can think of it as a period of bondage, a period of enslavement, a period of darkness. I mean, think about the gospel. Galatians refers to the gospel being preached to Abraham, okay? We, we think of the gospel, good news, rightly in connection with Christ and the appearing of Christ. But this very letter mentions the gospel, I think it's Genesis or Galatians 3.17, or uh, somewhere up in there. I should have written the passage down, I didn't. Maybe somebody can find that. Um, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Well, how was it preached to Abraham? Well, it was preached in promise form, okay? But the gospel was preached. But think about, where, where did you have to go to find the gospel? <laughs> you, had to, you, had to go to a, you had to go to a little sliver of land along the eastern end of the Mediterranean where the gospel was there in promise form, not even in full expression, but in promise form, contained in the Old Testament scriptures. You had to go to a particular ethnic group to find the gospel. Now, what does that say about the rest of the world? The rest of the world is in darkness. There's a little bit of light that's shining at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and it's there in promise form. And the rest of the world, all of the peoples and nations of the world, are covered in darkness, imprisoned in darkness, enslaved to elementary principles of the world, including the Galatians. He's writing to Galatians, Gentiles. Okay? Paul himself, Paul himself considered himself, numbered himself among that number. We were enslaved. But then verse 4, but... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Sent forth his son. Now, great word. Maybe you know the significance of this word. When the fullness of time had come. Three words, three types of time in the Greek uh, mind. Okay, we have sort of one, one word for time. They had three. One of them is chronos. Or maybe you can tell me. Do you know what these three words are? Chronos, right? What is chronos? Chronology. What, is, what, is, what kind of time is that? It's a time, like a timeline. It's measured time. Second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Measured time, the sequence of moments. There's another, uh, another Greek term uh, that actually comes into our vocabulary that gives us words like eternal, okay, eon, right, aeon. It's timeless time. It's limitless time. It's eternity. So you've got chronological time. You have eternal time. Limitless time. And then there's this third word, kairos, which is used very, very selectively. And it's used to describe epochal, E-P-O-C-H-A-L, epical moments, significant moments, moments in which God acts powerfully and redemptively. Okay? And that's the word that's used here. In the fullness of Kairos, in the fullness of time. It's like, I, you know, I don't know, it's like, kind of like a pregnancy, right? There's, the, there are the, there are, there's conception, there are the, day, the hours and the days and the weeks and the months of chronological time that lead up to the Kairos moment. What's the Kairos moment? Boom, right? Contractions, labor pains, delivery, and the birth. 
That's the Kairos moment, the significant moment. And notice, I, just, I, think, this is, I think this is really powerful. Notice the language that's used here. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. I don't remember when this was, but it was um, since some, some months ago, some, I can't even remember. I used this word in a sermon, eruption. You remember this? What is an eruption? E-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. What's an eruption? It's an explosion out, right? That's what volcanoes do. They erupt. What is an eruption? I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. It's an explosion in, okay? And this is what happened in the incarnation, the infleshing of Jesus. God sent forth his son. Sent him from where? Sent him from the glories of his eternal existence with the Father. And when Christ came, how did he come into the world? He came in weakness. He came in humility, to be sure. But he came as a king, right? God sent forth his son, Christ erupted, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, into the chronological, sequential time of our world. He broke into our world through the incarnation. I I mentioned this morning, I'd never seen this before. I think this is a legitimate connection. Um, it's, It's significant, seems significant to me, that the angel who made the announcement to Zechariah of the the birth of John the Baptist was Gabriel. Gabriel, which means warrior man or strong man. Right? Now, it's it's like militaristic sorts of connotations, right? A couple of weeks ago, I think I, I read that passage from Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit in which he talks about the temptation in these kinds of terms using this kind of language that when Jesus entered the wilderness he entered the domain of Satan and he went there armed with the word of God clothed with the word of God having been anointed by the Spirit of God, word and spirit coming together and Jesus' entry into the wilderness was as much and, and really was a, uh, a, a recapitulation of what had happened in the garden when the serpent came at Adam, right? He was the invader. The serpent was the invader, seeking to distort and twist the word of God. Now Jesus is the invader, making an incursion into the wilderness, into the domain of the devil, clothed with word and spirit, not twisting and distorting the word as the serpent continues to do, but speaking the word truly and accurately. And what's the effect of that? You remember the devil leaves. The devil leaves, right? You, you, you know, you take this, this sort of language and this sort of imagery, Galatians 4, 5, God sent his son into the world. Gabriel coming to make this announcement. Gabriel, the warrior of God, making this announcement to, to Zechariah. Uh, Jesus in the temptation, entering the domain of, um, of the devil. You, you see what's happening there is that God now is asserting himself, intruding himself, insinuating himself into the affairs of men, in the person of Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of everything that is promised across the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? Um, so, now, just this question, you know, what, what's happening here in these 400 years from the last prophecy of Malachi until Gabriel makes his appearance in the temple and speaks to Zechariah? What's going on here? It's all preparation. It's all set up. In the fullness of time, it's like, it's like the pregnancy. God is getting everything ready. He's setting the stage. He's ordering things. And, you know, um, secular historians, people who don't necessarily care, carry a brief for the Christian faith, will acknowledge, church historians certainly do this, 
But, but other historians, the, the Durants, if you, you know, Will and Ariel Durant and their multi-volume sort of history of the world kind of thing, history of Western civilization, acknowledge this, that, that through um, the influences of Greek culture, bringing a kind of unity to the whole of the Mediterranean world, through the influence of the Romans and law and engineering, roads, you know, so you have, you have a common language, Koine Greek or common Greek. You have all of the influence of, of Roman culture. The stage is set now for the coming of Christ and for what would happen following the coming of Christ. So this 400-year period of time, in so many ways, is setting the stage for the appearing of Christ. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, who was born of a woman, born under the law. So now then what happens? And this is, you know, this is just, this is just fun stuff. Luke chapter 2. Let me uh, anticipate where we're going to go in, um, in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> Uh, I'm sorry, Luke 1, not Luke 2. Um, I said a couple of weeks where we're going to go next week. Uh, Luke chapter 1. I just find this, given what we're talking about here, right? Uh, the kingdom of God, God's big picture, this, this theme of the kingdom that seems to tie the whole of the scriptures together. Just find this very interesting. Remember being really struck by this um, uh, last year during Advent, and, and actually preached from this passage, Luke one twenty six. In the sixth month, so you've got uh, you've got Gabriel making his announcement to Elizabeth or to, Ze- uh, to Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to have a child. The child will be the one promised in Malachi four the one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, children to their fathers. I, can, I just got to make, make this comment. What, what, you know, that's that language from Malachi 4 and then from, from Luke chapter 1. will turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. What is going to be the effect of the coming, first of the forerunner, and then of the Messiah? What's going to be the effect? Restoration. Restoration. I mean, look at our society. Look at any society. Where does a society begin to break down? The family unit. Where did it happen in the garden? The family unit. A husband and wife who had been best friends become enemies. Brothers who should have been best friends become enemies. One kills another. Enmity, hostility in the central institution of human civilization. So what is going to be? Isn't that, don't you find that interesting and powerful? When the forerunner comes, what is going to be the effect of his ministry? What will be the continuing effect of the ministry of the Messiah? It'll be that kind of effect. There'll be restoration. Restoration first between parents and children in the context of the family. I just think that's, that's striking. Okay, so we've got the announcement from Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth concerning John, who will be the forerunner. He will prepare the way. He clearly did that. People were going out into the wilderness to hear him preach. Very evident that he was, um, he was different from everybody else who came along. And he is the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke one twenty six. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't you love this? I mean, every time angels show up, people are terrified. And the first words are, 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. You remember what John means? God is gracious. God is gracious. That's the name given to John, to, to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. God is gracious. You will call his name Jesus. What did I say this morning? Jesus comes from Joshua. Joshua means redeemer, deliverer. You will call his name deliverer. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Don't you love that? I mean, what's the announcement? The announcement is of the birth of a king, who when he comes, brings with him the kingdom. He brings the kingdom. So the eruption which the Father authors and executes, the sending of Jesus into the world, is the sending of the king into the midst of the kingdoms of this world, into the dominion of darkness, the domain of Satan. And he comes in order to establish his kingdom. The throne of his father David will be given to him, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of this kingdom there'll be no end. And you, you know, you hear, right, you hear echoes of Isaiah in that, in those, in that verse, right? Isaiah 9, unto us, The child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. That's all that, right, Handel's Messiah, right. It's all of that imagery from Isaiah. Um, And then verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I find this interesting. You get a little window into next Sunday. Zechariah asked a similar question. How is this? How's this going to work? Mary asks a question. How's this going to work since I'm a virgin? Zechariah, I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. How's this going to happen? Mary, I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? It's interesting, isn't it, that Zechariah is rebuked and Mary isn't? You ever know, you ever think about why? I'm not sure. I'll study this a little more this week and see what smarter people than me have had to say about it. I think Zechariah should have known better. He's a priest, for heaven's sake. (laughs) He's a guy deep into fifth, sixth decade of his life. I don't know how old he is. He's a guy who should have known better. He's a guy who is familiar with the ways and the works of God. Mary, young woman, cut her some slack. (laughs) She's just asking the obvious. Wait a second. I mean, for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a baby, that's one thing. That feels out of reach. But for an unmarried woman to give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that isn't even on the charts of being within reach. Right? So, I'll let you know next Sunday. But I just find that interesting. Okay, so... What are we saying? Well, when, when the fullness of time comes, what is God doing? Well, he's sending the king. The father is sending the king into the midst of the world. Um, we've, we've mentioned uh, passages in Mark before. Let's, let's do it one more time. Um, Mark chapter 1 uh, captures um, the whole flow of this thing. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That's Isaiah 40. Uh, Every mountain will be brought low. Every low place will be raised up. Um, Again, that's, that's the opening of Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak, 
tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. So there's, there's Mark showing us John preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Uh, his ministry is described in verses 4 through 8. Um, and then in verses 9 through 11, there is Jesus uh, baptized by John in the Jordan, his baptism uh, symbolizing, representing his being clothed with power, clothed with the Spirit for the ministry that God uh, was giving to him. Um, verse 10, uh, verse 11, uh, a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 12 and 13, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, um, and there he is tempted. And then verses 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time, kairos, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the substance of Jesus' preaching. That was the gospel. The gospel of God summarized in verse 15, the time is at hand. The time is here. What time? The time for the eruption of the kingdom of God into the midst of the world. The time for the eruption of the Son of God sent by the Father into the world to begin this wonderful world work of restoring, according to the promise of Genesis 3.15, restoring everything that was undone by sin and the fall, temptation, sin, and the fall. Okay? So the, that's the, what the coming of Christ is. It's the, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of everything that is promised across the Old Testament, beginning with that first promise in Genesis 3. And it's all cast here in language of the kingdom. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, you know, here people are being, they're being presented with this, with this choice. There's a decision to be made here, right? And the decision is to turn away from the kingdoms of this world through repentance. That's what repentance is. It's turning around. It's turning away. It's turning from one thing to another thing. It's turning away from the kingdoms of this world, away from the pseudo-saviors, the kings of this world, turning in the direction of the true Savior, believing him, and through repentance and faith, entering into the kingdom of God that will have no end. That's the invitation to Jesus, from Jesus. So, time is fulfilled, kingdom of God is at hand, it's present, the king has come. And what, what do we see through, through the ministry of Jesus, through the life and ministry of Jesus? We see him repeatedly giving evidence of the presence of the kingdom. We see him doing it in his teaching. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, what is, I think this is a, this is a legitimate way to sort of break down kind of an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. What are the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What are the Beatitudes? Well, I'm in agreement with Martin Lloyd-Jones at this point that the Beatitudes are a description of the character of a citizen of the kingdom. This is what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. He's one who's poor in spirit, one who grieves over the reality of sin, one who hungers and thirsts after something else, something better, who thirsts after righteousness. And then following the Beatitudes is this this, this sort of little hinge where Jesus talks about us being the light of the world and the salt of the, of the earth, you know, that, that, that there, there is something that so distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom that people will be constrained to glorify God because of what they see. And then beginning, I have to look at Matthew to tell you exactly what verse it is. But beginning in verse 
21, Jesus begins to give us a proper interpretation, a proper understanding of the law. So beginning in verse 21, Jesus then works out in practice what living as a citizen of the kingdom looks like. So you have the Beatitudes uh, through verse 11. You have this sort of hinge passage, uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 20, uh, where Jesus, uh, in verse 16, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's something distinguishing about the citizens of the kingdom. And then beginning in verse 21 and through the end of chapter 8, in a number of different, different ways, Jesus works out what it looks like for citizens of the kingdom to live in the midst of this world. So Jesus, as the king, coming into the world, erupting, exploding onto the scene, teaches, gives his word as king to his people for their good, to regulate their life, to govern their life, right? So that their lives might be the distinctive lives that he, that he calls for them to be. And then in his works, so it's his word and his works. In his works, he gives evidence of the presence of the kingdom. He does it through the miracles that he performs. And I've, I've mentioned this probably ad nauseum. Um, you know, I, I hope you remember this, but what is the first miracle that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel after the announcement of the kingdom? He casts out a demon-possessed man, right? So what, what, that's highly significant. The kingdom explodes into the midst of the kingdoms of this world. In the person of Jesus, Jesus, clothed with the Spirit, clothed with the right understanding of the Word of God, begins to make his assault upon the kingdom of darkness. And the first thing that he does in Mark's gospel is deliver a demon-possessed man, right? It's game on, right? said that. It's game on. We're going to battle. And, and I think I've mentioned too, um, uh, Tim Keller points this out in his book, King's Cross, which is from a series of sermons he preached on the Gospel of Mark. He points out that the longest narrative of, of a miracle to be found anywhere in the Gospels is Mark chapter 5. And it's the narrative of the deliverance of legion. It's long, it's detailed, it's dramatic. And the dramatic moment comes when Jesus, with one word, speaks to this man who's possessed by a legion of demons. And with one word, he delivers the man. Boom. Free. Come out of him and go into these pigs. Um, So, you know, what are we seeing there? Well, we're seeing Jesus in his word and in his works, through, his, through giving his law word to his people for their good. And in his works, we're seeing the king begin to exert his kingly authority, his kingly presence, as he begins to reverse all of the awful effects of temptation, sin, uh, and the fall. So what do we have in, um, in the incarnation? We have the eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, We have the eruption of the kingdom of God into the midst of this world in the person of Jesus Christ, the king, who is clothed with all of the authority of the kingdom. So in the life and ministry of Jesus, the kingdom is present. It's present. The kingdom is present. And, you know, again, I mean, we haven't even talked about all of that typology and stuff that there is in the Old Testament that we looked at a few weeks ago, that Jesus fulfills the Passover, right? Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If you come under his blood, then you are safe from the threat of death and judgment. Um, we, we haven't talked about, um, about uh, I mean, we we did when we went through these passages. We haven't talked about Jesus fulfilling the Day of Atonement. We haven't talked about Jesus fulfilling uh, the priestly functions uh, as he, the high priest, great high priest, offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. 
Um, we haven't talked about the fact that Jesus, through conquest, we're talking about that right now, um, in, in thinking about Jesus bringing the kingdom and beginning to make his assault upon the kingdom of darkness. But that's something that we could, could elaborate and talk about uh, as well. The, the, in all of these respects, the kingdom is present in the person of Jesus. The kingdom is inaugurated in the person of Jesus. So that Jesus, by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, brings the presence of the kingdom to bear in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Okay? That, I mean, that's, that's what Advent is all about. That's what we're celebrating. Okay. Now, we, as we, I said, I'd like to do this as we sort of walk through um, the, the, the church year, the liturgical year, we're in Advent celebrating incarnation. Incarnation obviously leads to life, the life of perfect obedience, by which Christ the King, who is our substitute in his living, secures for us a perfect righteousness. That life of obedience leads to his substitutionary death on the cross, whereby his death is a substitute, In taking our sin upon himself, he is judged in our place so that we are set free from the threat of judgment. He then, having died, is buried. He tastes death for all of those who belong to him. And then he gains victory over death for all of those who belong to him. On the third day after his death, he's raised to newness of life never to die again. Okay? I should put another little arrow in here because I don't mean for this blue arrow to represent the resurrection. Here's, here's the resurrection. So we, we, we celebrate resurrection, not that it's a small thing, it's a very big thing. I don't mean to suggest that. It's a very big deal. But having been raised, that's not the end of the story. Right? What happens after resurrection? What's the next big event after resurrection? Well, he, yeah, I mean, he makes multiple appearances across these 40 days. But the next big event is ascension, right? Now, I said this morning, I said, you know, we, we, we're pretty soft about this church year thing. And, and we are. I mean, we don't make a big deal out of it. Um, had a suggestion made to me about how we can do something even you know, more to sort of reinforce this idea. I said, I'd like to do more. Here's one of the things I'd like to do. I'd like to have an Ascension Day service. Ascension doesn't fall on a Sunday, right? Ascension Day, the, the church's celebration of Ascension is 10 days after Resurrection Day, which makes it a Thursday, Now, why haven't we had an Ascension Day service? Isn't it 10? No, Pentecost is 40. Oh, 50. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're right, you're right. That's right, it's 10 from Ascension to Pentecost. I thought you said four days. Okay, 40 days. Thank you, thank you. So 40 days, Ascension. Why don't we have an Ascension Day service? One simple reason. You won't come. Not to, not to be mean-spirited, not to be unkind, not to chastise you or anything else. But, but people won't come. But I'm ready to do it anyway. Why? Look, apart from Pentecost and the return of Christ, after the resurrection, it's the biggest day in the year. It's the biggest day in history, the ascension of Christ. Why is that? Why is Ascension Day? Why should Ascension Day be a bigger deal to us than it is? Because it's, because it's the day of enthronement, right? That's what Ascension Day represents. It's the day of enthronement. Um, you, you know the passage, Acts chapter 1, and you know how the disciples are, um, you know, they're watching Jesus go up, you know, beam me up, Scotty. They're watching him go up, okay? And there are angels there, always angels hanging around. And the angels say, why, uh, why are you standing there? This is um, 
verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, what does it mean to go into heaven? We we can talk about this in January when we we come back and we, we sort of review all this stuff. What does it mean to go into heaven? I mean, you, you can't think spatially and, and uh, you can't think spatially or geographically about this. You have to think theologically about the ascension. And the ascension isn't so much a going up. Barbara and I have a friend. I said this one time in a, in a Bible study, and this, this friend said, well, I don't know about you, but I'm going up, Right? When Jesus comes, I'm going up. It's not so much a going up. If you think spatially, look, earth is hanging out here, suspended in the midst of space. Who knows which end is up? I mean, think about it. Where's up? Up for you in North America would be down for you if you're in China. It's not up and down. It's not a spatial thing. It's a profoundly theological thing. And what it means for Jesus to go up into heaven, though for the disciples, in that moment, it was an up, spatially. They saw him go up from the earth. But the real significance of the ascension is what? That Jesus crossed over the veil that separates the seen world from the unseen world and was enthroned, restored to the glory of his Father and given all authority and all power and all dominion. Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Remember Daniel chapter 7? I saw one like a son of man who was approaching the Ancient of Days and to him was given power and authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. So the, again, say it for the third, fourth, fifth time. Ascension is not so much a going. It's not like Jesus left and went to some far removed place sort of out of sight from us. He crossed over the veil that separates the seen from the unseen. The heavenly realm where he now is currently ruling and reigning as king. Right now, we are not waiting for Jesus to come back so that he can be king, ruling and reigning. Jesus went up into heaven and assumed his place as king at the right hand of the Father And right now, he is ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of his people, the church. Okay? How do I, why do I think that? Because the Bible tells me that. And let me give you just one passage, but I think it's a critical passage. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 23 to 25. Paul's talking, he's talking about the resurrection That's the burden of his concern in this chapter. Verse 20. Basically, he's he's dealing with people who've said, either the resurrection has already come or there is no resurrection. Here he's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, you're toast. Rough paraphrase, you're toast. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Christ has already been raised. He is the first fruits. Now here's a connection that you need, to, you need to make. Christ is the first fruits. He is the representative, the first fruits of all of those who will be raised. But you also have to remember that a resurrection has already occurred in your life at the spiritual level. 
Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespass and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, has raised you up and made you alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Okay? So Christ is the first fruits. Christ, by his literal physical resurrection, makes the down payment, the deposit, for your final restoration, and you've already begun to experience that restoration by your spiritual renewal, by your resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. You're alive now, right? And that life is going to lead finally to your physical resurrection. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Christ is the firstfruits. He is the down payment. He is the promise. He is the assurance of a greater resurrection to come. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Okay? So, when was Christ raised? Here. Okay? When will you be raised? What does it say? At his coming. When is that? That's down here. That's at the end of history. That's when Christ returns. Christ, um, then comes the end. Okay, blah, 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 blah. each in his own. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Resurrection of Christ resurrection of all who belong to Christ, and what comes immediately after that? The end. What's the end? The end is the end. Finite. Conclusio. Das Ende. The end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So what's going to happen? Resurrection of Christ, resurrection of those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, then what gets destroyed? Every rule, every authority that stands in opposition to Christ. And what does Jesus do? He delivers the perfected kingdom to the Father. I've done what you asked me to do. I came in fulfillment of all of this. I inaugurated the kingdom. I've brought the kingdom to a conclusion. And now the Redeemer presents the whole thing, perfected and completed, to the Father, to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay? And then verse 25. I love this. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right? So you ask... What's going on? All right, resurrection of Christ, resurrection of those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, destruction of every rule and authority, deliverance of the kingdom to the Father. Jesus must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. Has every enemy been put under the feet of Christ? Yes and no. For him, yes. For you, no. Death is still a threat to you. Death is still an enemy. And the last end, Satan is still an enemy. He is still a threat to you. Right? But the last enemy to be put to death, to be crushed under the feet of the serpent-crushing Redeemer, is death itself. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Kind of a confusing sentence. But what Paul's saying is everything is in subjection to Christ except the Father who put everything else in subjection to Christ. The Father's not subject to the Son. The Son is subject to the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. What's the point here? The point is, between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who belong to Christ, we're in the business of proclaiming the presence of the kingdom and collecting saints. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're collecting saints. I said ascension. 
I mean, it's a big deal. Jesus being enthroned. Jesus being given this authority and this power. The next big thing, 10 days later, get my math correct. The next big thing is Pentecost. What's the purpose of Pentecost? To what end? For what purpose? To what end and what purpose? To grow the church. How? How how do you grow the church? By proclaiming the presence of the kingdom. Where do you grow the church? In Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and at the ends of the earth. Now think about it. Think about this side of the cross and this side of the cross. This side of the cross, you had to go to a little sliver of real estate on the eastern end of the Mediterranean to find a faintly flickering little bit of light. How about today? How about today? Look, you can... I don't know where we are. I can't calculate it. I don't know numbers. You can go just about any place on this planet and gain access to the light. There are some places that are still not reached, but those places are becoming fewer and fewer and farther and farther between. There are some places, one of the reasons I'm really excited about our mission conference in February is because we're going to have a converted Muslim tell us what God is doing in the Muslim world. People are becoming Christians in the Muslim world. The gospel is present even in the Muslim world, right? So, Why is the Spirit given? The Spirit is given, Acts chapter 1, to empower the church to be witnesses to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, The Spirit is not given, not primarily, so you can have a quiver in your liver. I mean, look. There is a real experiential dimension to the Christian faith. We say this all the time. But the real significance is that the king, having ascended to the throne of his father, together with the father, fulfills all of those promises in the last discourse, the final discourse, the upper room discourse of Jesus, John 14, 15, and 16, sending the Spirit to accomplish and do all of those things that are outlined there and to clothe and empower the church to continue the ministry of Jesus. Okay? Um, I know I've mentioned this before. I think, it's, I think it's really interesting that in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, um, Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I think the clear implication is that this second book is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And he does it through the agency of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit clothes his church with power so that the church then can continue the ministry of Jesus across this whole period of time while Jesus is ruling and reigning, Matthew 28, having been given authority all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus continues to rule and reign across this whole period of time as the church proclaims the gospel to every race, nation, tribe, and tongue until the day when he returns and he finishes what he has started. He brings to completion and perfects the kingdom. And then is the new heaven and the new earth where the king rules through his word, Jesus, right? his word incarnate, where the king rules through his word over a people in a particular place, new heaven, new earth, and they enjoy the blessedness and prosperity that God has designed for them forever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the story. Okay. I love to tell the story. Yeah, sure. You said back when you were illustrating the prophets and the patriarchs on your um, on, on the board, they're like that. There's one critical thing that before 80 BC, where Esther becomes queen of Persia and her cousin Mordecai working behind the scenes, it's critical because. Sure. Of 
wanted, wanted to exterminate the Jews. God through Esther and Mordecai prevented that. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep, it's a great... I mean, look, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that we haven't really t- touched. We haven't touched on Esther. We haven't really talked about the wisdom literature. We could do this again after the first of the year. How does, how does the wisdom literature fit into this? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. How, how do those books fit into this unfolding story of the kingdom? The Psalms. How do the Psalms fit into this? Some of them were sung. Not all of them were sung. Um, but they all contain incredible allusions and references and encouragements um, to this unfolding story as well as you know, look, look. There's the there's the big unfolding story, and then there's your story, right? There, there's the thing that God is doing across all of history, and then there's the thing that God is doing in your personal history. And the thing that is so wonderful about the Psalms is that the Psalms reflect that individual and personal walk with God that we all, as His children, are engaged in both the joys and the sorrows, the struggles, the hopes, the dreams, the sadness, the whole thing. It's all there in the Psalms. And, and so, all, you know, there's a lot of stuff here um, that, uh, that we certainly could talk about as we talk about this, this unfolding story. You're right, Ray. I mean, the story of Esther is a pretty critical story in this, in this uh, unfolding thing. So, okay. Yes, ma'am. You know, here's my encouragement. Just use the season to do all of that stuff. The, the, the way, I mentioned this this morning, the way the church sort of historically has approached the four weeks of Advent is that the first two weeks really sort of focus on preparation, repentance. That, that's what John um, summons people to, is, is to repent um, his role is to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. How do you prepare for the coming of the Lord? Repentance is a key uh, element in that. And then, and then represented by that rose-colored or pink candle, there's a kind of a shift. Just, this is just a traditional sort of spiritual exercise that the church has embraced. There's a kind of a shift from, from repentance to rejoicing. As, as the day of the Lord's arrival draws near, it, 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 it elicits from us a response of joy. And so the last two Sundays in Advent um, focus more on rejoicing. So, you know, repentance in preparation, rejoicing at the prospect of the coming of, of the Savior. And another thing that the church historically has done in, in Advent um, is is sort of focus on not just the first advent, but the second advent of Christ. You know, the the prophetic view of the advent, I I think I've shared this illustration, the the view of the prophets, and I I don't remember where I, I'm sure you've heard this illustration, I don't remember where I heard it first, but the view of the prophets is a kind of a linear or horizontal view of of distant history. And so what sort of gets telescoped into what appears to be one event is the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, it's a little bit like approaching the Rocky Mountains from Kansas. You see the mountains out in front of you, but you can't really differentiate the rear range from the front range. But what but in point of fact, from the time you get out of Kansas and into Colorado, there's a lot of mountain range that you've got to cross to get to the other side. But you can't, you can't really differentiate or distinguish the distance from the front to the back or from the beginning to the end. And so, and the, ch- the church has sort of recognized that, that in Advent, we, we want to try to capture an understanding that the first Advent of Christ 
certainly prophesied in a passage like Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, you know, that sort of thing, captures kind of the front end of the range. But then you get these prophecies like Isaiah 35. It's one of my favorite passages that describes the desert erupting and, you know, exploding in color and, and this picture of total restoration, final restoration. You get, you get pictures um, in the prophets of, of, of final judgment, of God bringing final judgment upon the nations. That all kind of gets telescoped down. Well, the church has historically has said, well, let's not just think about the, the first coming of Christ. Let's recognize that this first coming of Christ is in anticipation of his final return in the consummation of all things. So during Advent, we're not only looking at the incarnation or the eruption of the kingdom of God in the midst of the world. We're thinking also, we're thinking in hope. And, and this is going to be reflected in Mary's song. You read the Magnificat this year, this week. You know, Mary talks about powers being brought down and the rich being sent away empty-handed and the poor and the broken being... Well, that didn't happen in her day. I mean, the Romans killed her son. <laughs> they still appeared to have power. What's she doing? Well, she's thinking beyond this initial day of the Lord and advent of the Lord. She's thinking way down the road at the final consummation of all things and singing about it. And the church has kind of picked up on that cue. So that's another thing that I'd say, you know, work into your thinking about advent. We're not just thinking about baby Jesus here. We're thinking about the king of glory who returns at the end of history to finish what he started. So I I would just say, use it all. You know, use it all. Don't be, don't be tied to something, but be expansive and, and use it with your kids. Is that? Okay. Okay. Anything else before we go for the evening? Ten after seven? Late, as always. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, um, for this thing that you've done. And I, I pray for us in this season, and I Lord, I know in the weeks to come there are going to be folks making their way into this building and into other buildings where these things are believed and loved and, and however, however poorly or inadequately, they're going to be preached. They're going to be preached here and they're going to be preached in other places. And I, I pray that by the mighty acting and work of your Spirit, you would open eyes to see these things, the beauty and the glory and the wonder of these things that you'd open hearts to receive these things. Um, Lord, would you make incursions into dark places and rescue people out of their darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light and life over which you rule and reign. Uh, Lord, and I pray you'd do it over these next Sundays in this church, in this place, because you know, Lord, I have some sense, and you know that there are some folks who come here week by week who don't know you. And I pray for them and pray that somehow this stuff would impact them and open their eyes and open their hearts and bring them to saving knowledge of yourself. Uh, Lord, give us great joy as these weeks uh, of Advent leading to Christmas pass by one by one. We pray in your name. Amen.